Superpowers on the Superpower Up podcast, the show that lifts the voice of love from orgasms to superpowers and everything in between. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sex, Love, and Superpowers podcast show. I'm your host, Tatiana Berende, and today I have a very lovely woman who I'm going to be talking with. Her name is Robin LaCrosse. And we are going to be discussing raising empowered kids. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Let me tell you a little bit about Robin before we dive in today. Robin LaCrosse is a holistic health practitioner who specializes in women's reproductive health. She's been using and teaching natural birth control methods for over 25 years. Robin is passionate about empowering women and making sure all girls grow up knowing and understanding their bodies. Robin believes that by changing the way parents talk to their kids about sex, we can reduce unintended pregnancies and the spread of STDs in the world. To this end, Robin founded the HPV Education Project to raise awareness about the virus and the problems it causes. She also created a pair of online interview series called the Raising Empowered Daughters Summit and the Raising Empowered Kids Interview Series, where she interviewed over 40 experts on a wide variety of topics designed to empower parents to communicate freely with their children about growing up, sex, relationships, and staying safe. Robin helps parents prepare for these challenging conversations by offering online training programs, private coaching, and through her weekly radio show, which I had the honor to be a guest on, the Holistic Sex Ed Radio. So welcome to the show, Robin. Hi, Tatiana. Thank you so much for having me here today. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you. So before we jump in, will you tell our listeners what your superpowers are? My superpowers? I have the gift of the big picture view. When somebody tells me that they have a goal or desire or vision, that, that they something in their life that they want, like I can immediately see the path to that outcome. And one of the ways that this big picture view has has taken shape in my life, well, there's many ways that it has taken shape in my life, but one of the problems that I ran into as, as a teenager or, you know, my early 20s was not understanding my body. And as a result of that, it kind of triggered a quest for information. And what I wanted, my goal was a natural solution to manage my fertility, and I couldn't see the picture, you know, the, the road there, and it triggered a huge quest for information. And in the end, I have this, this amazing view, this very deep understanding of the female body and can help other women achieve their goals, you know, like what they want with their reproductive health. And so I think that's also kind of morphed into a superpower too, is you know, my ability to use that big picture view to help other women create a way to manage their fertility successfully so that they can live in harmony with their body, you know, achieve their goals, whether it's to eventually have a family or not, you know, um, not have children. So it's really been a blessing in my life for both myself and for my clients. I love that you're talking about the big picture view. You know, often, often when we talk about that, where at least I get this visual of like the eagle eye view, you know, like you zoom up a thousand feet and you can see like the whole planet underneath you. And I love that you're, you're bringing it sort of down to an overview of the body and an mm -hmm. understanding of the big picture of the body, which we might not necessarily think of as big picture. And yet what you're talking about is so important and valid in, in terms of how all of the different components work together and understanding that and mm -hmm. being able to have agency and authority over our, over how we interact with the natural rhythms and cycles in our bodies um, is pretty awesome. So I like, I like your drawing, drawing that line there. Thank you. Um, Thank you. You know, there's a lot of, Natural fertility methods have gotten a lot of sort of kickback, right? There's a lot of people who don't believe that that's a thing or that it, it's mm -hmm. like a bunch of BS or it's yep. like, oh, yeah, how do you know that you were using the rhythm method because you have five kids or whatever, you know? Right. Um, so and, and I know I really do want to talk about raising empowered kids, but I feel like this is tied into that. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that because I feel like there's a lot of misconception, a lot of misunderstanding around what natural f fertility methods actually are and how to do them effectively. Yeah. So 
you mentioned the rhythm method and you know that's it's kind of the joke of of natural methods let's put it that way and basically what the rhythm method is is an educated guess about when you're going to be fertile so no wonder people get pregnant <laughs> you know what i mean it's like yeah. your body so the female body is this this amazing beautiful thing you know and and in in within within our body we have this amazing cycle that we go through you know, every day every week that's a little bit different every month there's like this pattern that unfolds and what people don't realize is there's the myth of the 28 day cycle and this is right. the textbook version of a woman's fertile cycle and this is what the doctors learn on so they this need is what your due date and pregnancy is based on too. Yes, it? it is. And so that's why, you know, sometimes kids are early, quote unquote, or late, quote unquote. And it's only because we're using a system of averages rather than based on scientific data of and like what's happening inside a woman's individual body. And that's where for fertility awareness methods comes in. It's it's not a guessing game. It's a scientific based combination of methods that when combined you can gather enough information to make solid decisions about your fertility as far as like when to use condoms when not to use condoms i mean and we're talking about like a monogamous relationship where you're not concerned about stds this sort of thing but what people don't realize is ovulation is not set in stone. So when you're looking at the, the textbook 28-day cycle, you have 14 days ovulation, 14 days period. And, you know, ovulation is nice, neatly, neatly set in the middle. And that's great if you have a quote-unquote textbook cycle. But for most women, we don't. And ovulation can be influenced by a number, number of things. So it can be influenced by stress, travel. Mm -hmm sickness, lots of different things. You know, some people, you know, some women have unpredictable cycles because there's hormonal things going on. And so really what it is, is by teaching young girls that there's, you know, a 28 day cycle it one makes them feel like they're abnormal. If their day is, if their cycles are longer than 28 days or shorter than 28 days. And so what I teach my clients is that, okay, Ovulation is not set in stone. It can vary based on things that are happening in your life. However, there's there's a hormonal chain of events that lead up to ovulation, which cause symptoms in the body that you can detect. And then there's scientific ways of measuring that actually ovulation did occur. And at that point, you're non-fertile for the rest of the cycle. So for somebody who's teaching fertility awareness methods to women who don't want to get pregnant, what I do to make it easy on my clients is I just tell them no unprotected sex until you have absolutely positively confirmed that ovulation is done for that cycle. And once you have, then the rest of that cycle, let's just say 10 days or so roughly, that you can have unprotected sex without fear of pregnancy. And then once your period starts, that's day one of your new cycle. And then we go into that whole process of, you know, it's going to be based in part on your cycle history because there is value in history. However, it's not wise to make educated guesses about your fertility if you really don't want to get pregnant. And so that's why the rhythm method just doesn't work. And that's why people make jokes about it. Yes. Thank you. That was like such a clear and concise answer. And I can say that I have very successfully utilized fertility awareness in, in my life. And you obviously have because you don't have children, you know, like, yeah, I've used it for over 25 years. I discovered it, you know, basically how I got involved in this stuff was, you know, I started having sex at a, at a young age. I was introduced to sex, you know, by a sexual predator in our family. So there's a history of sexual abuse. When I was 14, I decided that I wanted to give my virginity to a person of my choosing. And so I made arrangements with my boyfriends to have a night where I gave him my virginity and, you know, it was a magical, beautiful night. However, we got caught in the process and, you know, my parents broke us up and the whole big drama thing. But basically the long story short is, you know, by the time I acquired my second boyfriend, my mom decided to put me on the pill and I was 15 years old. 
I stayed on the pill for five years. And so when I was 20, I decided that, you know, I really didn't want to be on the pill anymore. I was moving towards a more holistic lifestyle. I had become a vegetarian. You know, I was just, I was getting into herbs. I was discovering, you know, alternative healing. It was a big thing in the 80s. It was all the rage. And just putting hormones, artificial hormones in my body just really fell out of alignment with what I was trying to do. And so basically what happened was I, in spite of having sex ed twice in school, in spite of having all of this, you know, my mom and I, we sat down and we had the quote unquote talk, you know, so in spite of having all this supposed education, I was still clueless about how to protect myself from getting pregnant. And that triggered a quest for information. And basically what happened was I discovered this book on natural family planning and it was kind of a religiously flavored book about how to get pregnant and, you know, use the signals and, and, you know, symptoms of your body. And, and I was like, wow, like, I don't want to get pregnant, but wow, my body's doing all this stuff that I had no idea that I could like learn to interpret and watch and, you know, record all this information and actually learn to tell when I was fertile. Mm-hmm. And so that just like really triggered a quest for more information. So I like went to the bibliography and there's like, you know, references to scientific articles and other books. And so I went to like the medical libraries and started like doing this research because I wanted to know like, what do the scientists know about the female body, about fertility, about menstruation, about early pregnancy. And then I was stumbling on like herbs that were used to influence the cycle, both to increase and decrease fertility. And it just, it became like my second PhD in life, you know, my personal PhD in life. And so I I'm, just I and I love your the enthusiasm that sent you on this quest and we do have to go to a quick break. Okay. Um, so I'm sorry to cut you off but no we, worries. we're going to dive deeper in because I know you have such a wealth of information about how to how you know how to talk to your kids about this and how how to really raise empowered children. So um before we go to break will you tell our listeners where they can go to find out more about you and your work? Yes, so you can go to my website holistic sexedradio.com and I have all kinds of information there, links to my other websites and you can find out all about me and my radio show there. Awesome. So we're talking with Robin LaCrosse today about raising empowered kids. More when we get back. You don't want to miss this one. So stay tuned. Hello, everyone. This is Tonya Don Reckla, Executive Director of Superpower Experts. And we want to thank each of you for making Superpower Up the number one podcast network for personal development and spiritual growth. Because people like you have the courage to say that mindfulness, healthy living, disrupting reality, the pursuit of consciousness, responsible entrepreneurship, and radical parenting matter. We now amass over 1 million downloads monthly in more than 90 countries. Our numbers keep growing because there are far more people willing to live divergently than mass media wants to acknowledge. For you, the change makers, the light bearers, the way showers, we say thank you. If you're ready to take the next step in your evolution, go now to superpowerexperts.com and take the superpower quiz. And as Neva Lee Rekla, our youngest podcaster, likes to remind us, remember, we all have superpowers and we can change the world. Okay, we're back. So I love I love your thirst for learning and and the the quest that that set you on, um, and how motivated you were to just absorb all of this information. And it's true. I mean, it, it sounds like you really did give yourself a, a, a master degree or PhD in in this topic, um, which you wouldn't have been able to go to school necessarily and get a PhD for. Back, <laughs> That's back really then, true. You know? I mean, nowadays probably you could swing that. Um, but, yeah, um, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing to me. Honestly, I was like, Oh my God, you can, you can get a, a master's degree in that. Like if I had known when I was back in school. Right. Yeah. Um, but so, so then, so talk to us about how this has translated over into your, um, your thirst for educating other people and especially parents with children and children themselves about how to, how to be in right relationship with their bodies and, and an understanding of this. Cause this, you know, this was clearly, it was your passion. It was something that you were very, um, hungry for. Not everyone has the same desire to study to that degree to understand their body. Right. Mm-hmm. 
So how, how do you take someone who maybe doesn't have the same level of thirst that you had and give them a proper education about how these things work and how they can use them in their life? Well, I think part of it is making it really easy because most people aren't going to go to the medical libraries and sift through medical journals to figure out what the right. scientists do know. And so, you know, thank goodness there's books out there. Thank goodness there's, you know, the internet, which makes so much information available. But the truth is to go this deep into understanding a woman's body you know, you mentioned, you know, like there's there's a lot of educational programs for all sorts of things. And several years ago, you know, I don't know, it's actually closer maybe to 10, 15 years ago, after my divorce, I decided to go back to school to become a holistic health practitioner because I wanted to help women understand their bodies more. And I was very excited, enthusiastic when the section about reproduction came around becomes like, all right, I'm in school now. I'm going to learn some cool stuff, some stuff I didn't know. And guess what? I could have taught that class and I could have did a better job <laughs> than the teacher. <laughs> I was like, darn, this is just surface level. I'm like, dang, this is disappointing. <laughs> so, so yeah. So when really where it came from is as I was learning this information, it was just blowing my mind. And I was kept saying to myself, like I kept coming back to the central question, like what if my mom knew this stuff to teach me? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it would be life-changing, um, literally yeah, life-changing. Totally. You know, a lot of my personal experiences being exposed to sexually transmitted diseases, unintended pregnancies, sexual abuse, you know, boys who, you know, didn't have my best interest at heart type thing. So like learning how to choose a good partner, things like that. Like, I didn't get any of this information. And as I uncovered things like this, like understanding my body and how to use the signals and the signs and my understanding of my cycle to avoid pregnancy, I was like, you know, if every woman grew up understanding this information about her body, we would reduce unintended pregnancies. People would know about sexually transmitted diseases. And so you wouldn't be making these Mis, you know, mistakes, I'll use that word lightly, of, you know, just because you didn't know any better. Right. And there's so much of that out there because kids don't get a good education in school. Even when they do get a good sex education at school, there is so much missing. There is so much that the schools can't transmit. There's information that the schools can't transmit. And really, as I was talking to other women, you know, teach sharing this information, you know, in my travels. Okay. So, so you're talking about the importance of, you know, if you, if you had grown up knowing this stuff and, and how there's a lot of things in, in sex ed that can't actually be transmitted. So, I mean, I feel like being a parent nowadays, there's so much responsibility that gets put on our shoulders, right? It's like, mm-hmm. it, sometimes it feels like the weight of the world, especially with technology. And, you know, there's like so many things to navigate that I feel like we just parents didn't have to navigate before. And, and, and most of us probably grew up, those of us who are having kids nowadays um, and, and raising children, most of us grew up likely with parents who sort of outsourced our education to schools. Mm-hmm. And, and that, so that's the, that's the model that we have. And so there, this idea that we as parents then have to sort of take the reins um, in, in educating and teaching our children about some really important things can be daunting at times. Yes. Especially, How, especially because we didn't get that education ourselves. So we don't have anybody to role model it and then add on top of how things have changed Mm-hmm. Since when we were young, like the internet for a lot of us didn't either didn't exist or was in its infancy. And now, you know, we have porn at our fingertips and kids as young as seven years old are sometimes being exposed to porn. And so how do you prepare children for that? Right. You know, most parents are like, my child is so innocent. I don't want to talk to them about porn. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't want to be the one to introduce the concept, right? I think yeah. that's, that's often the fear is like, well, yes. if you haven't been exposed to it yet, but how do you know? Because I think there's a lot of things that, especially with engagement with technology, children won't necessarily tell us that they've experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So when you're talking with parents nowadays, how do you make this information sort of less daunting, more digestible, more easily accessible for them? So what I do is, you know, what I do is I focus on the parents. Like we need to educate mom and dad. So it starts by, you know, breaking this stuff down into smaller bite-sized chunks. It involves a lot of communication because, you know, these are delicate conversations and how you approach a conversation, how you bring this material up, especially like if your children are older, like if it's, if your child is five years old, it's pretty easy because they're, they're, they don't have any of that baggage, that cultural baggage that they've, that right. the rest of us pick up along the way. And so it really depends on like the ages of your children. But as far as, you know, when I, when a parent comes into my world, you know, we start with looking at you know, like, how do you feel about some of these things? What are your thoughts about this? And really just start to kind of unpack the parents' feelings, thoughts around sex, sexuality, talking to kids about sex, different topics around sex. And so there's just a lot of work that mom and dad can do to help prepare themselves and make it easier, practice in a safe environment so that it feels less uncomfortable to start having these conversations. And I think a big piece of it too is realizing that, you know, you don't have to have this conversation all in one big dump of information. Right. You know, and in it's fact, much, it doesn't work that way. Like it doesn't, it's so not going to be as effective <laughs> it's if really you true. try to do it all at once. Like, yeah, it is, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, you have to have it repeatedly. Right. Yeah. And people can only process so much information at once. And if you're having a difficult conversation, everybody's feeling a little uncomfortable. You know, I mean, kids totally pick up on that sort of thing. And so just by breaking it down into small bite-sized chunks and sticking to the facts and not like bringing in like your personal experiences or because I mean, as adults, we've had all of these experiences over our lifetime. And and when it, when our kid maybe asks us a question and it's like the urge to share is there, it's like, oh, this is my opportunity. Blah, here's all this information. And the kid is just like, oh, I just had, just wanted this little question answered and I would have been good. Like the rest was just too much, you know, kind of thing. So it's really true. Breaking it down into small bite-sized pieces, realizing that this is an ongoing conversation that you have over time can really take the pressure off that big anxiety feeling like, oh, I need to talk to my kid about sex. It feels so big and, and scary, you know, kind of thing. Right. I need to have the talk. We've talked about this a lot on the show when mm -hmm. this topic has come up that like calling it the talk is doing a huge disservice because it puts us in this, in this mindset and in this box of this idea that this is a talk that happens one time. Right. And it's like, no, this is not a talk that happens one time. <laughs> this is a talk that happens repeatedly. Um, mm -hmm. and, and should just be a regular topic of conversation, especially as your children get older and their hormones are developing and they're, you know, they start to actually become interested in sex. Like mm -hmm. it, you need to be discussing it. And, you know, I, I, I often think about like when I was growing up, like by the time my parents had the talk with me, I had already been exposed to so many ideas and concepts from my peers. Mm -hmm. And I was like, eight or nine years old. Yep. Right. And I, and we were talking about blowjobs and we were talking about these kinds of things mm -hmm. and like, you know, like pretending to make out when we were playing our play or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I was eight or nine years old and I was so horribly embarrassed that my parents were trying to talk to me about this thing that like, clearly I was already so savvy about because my friends and I were discussing it. Right. Exactly. You already knew what it, you I'm needed like, to know. Yes. Oh my God. That's horrifying. It's horrifying that as an eight year old, I thought I was savvy about this stuff, first of all. And that like, I was learning it all from my peers. Like, no wonder I made some of the mistakes that I made and, <laughs> and, right. and ended up in some of the scenarios that I ended up in, you know? Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that parents don't really realize. It's like, oh, my kid is so innocent. You know, I don't want to be the one to like, shatter their innocence and well first there's there's a couple things one is why does talking about sex you know shattering their innocence there's yeah, clearly you. something that needs to be unpacked there thank and then you. second of all um really i forgot what i was going to say um but the that's all right it'll, <laughs> it'll come back um uh -huh. so take a moment here um 
Cause my, maybe you're, you're, uh, you're catching my, my pregnancy brain frog over there. It's <laughs> contagious. <laughs> yes. Well, in, I, I kind of forgot. I'm, I'm still a little distracted because my dog came back early unexpectedly <laughs> and, and, and interrupted us. So I was still a little about that, but, uh, yeah. So, so, but, but basically when it comes to talking to kids about sex and, you know, the, the stress and anxiety that parents feel about it. I mean, there's, there's this cultural brainwashing that has happened. Like we have, I mean, when I was growing up in the eighties, like all the movies that we watched, you know, it's like the idea that talking to your parents about sex was mortifying, was horrible, Mm -hmm. was like the last worst thing in the world kind of thing was, was pushed on these movies, you know, the whole, you know, menstruation is a negative thing is pushed on these movies, you know, you're on the rag on flow, you know, all these derogatory things, you know, she's PMSing these kinds of things. And so there's a lot of negativity that surrounds sex. And when parents are talking to kids, oh, and now I remember what I was going to say before is, you know, when parents don't talk to their kids about sex, it's, it leaves that there's a hole, there's a gaping hole in a kid's information. And so their peers come in and fill in that information. Or the internet comes in and fills in that. The internet comes in and fills that information. You have sexual abusers and predators who come in and fill that information. Like for my, from, from my personal experience, you know, we didn't talk about sex, you know, in the household, our household, you know, my mom and dad weren't affectionate to each other. And so in this gaping hole of information, you know, the person in our family, you know, came in and started, you know, I mean, it starts gradually. And then, you know, then there's like little secrets that you start to keep and eventually the secrets get bigger. And so like they groom you. And so when you have somebody who's grooming your child and you haven't been there saying, this is inappropriate touch. This is what you do if somebody tries to do this, you know, these kinds of things and like tell kids, you know, like this is out there, this exists. And if this happens, you know, come and tell me, we're going to talk about it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's my job to protect you. And so when you don't, when you're not putting those messages in, then other people get to put those messages in first. And so one of the common things that when we were talking about like sexual predators, like I think a very common thing that, that happens in sexual abuse with children is that whoever is doing the abusing will say to the kids, like, do not tell anyone or you're going to get in trouble. And so being able to tell your child, like, first of all, if anyone ever tells you to not tell me about something that they've done to you, that is an immediate signal that you need to tell me and you will not get in trouble for that. Exactly. Like that is a hugely important thing to instill in our children because that's part of how this stuff perpetuates. Mm-hmm. To, to to let your kids know, like I will listen to you, I will believe you, and mm-hmm. I you will not get in trouble. It is whatever if some if if an adult touches you inappropriately, it is never your fault. Yep. Mm-hmm. I think, and it's so important yeah. to have those messages there first. And so if you wait till eight years old, you know you wait till the kids are older beyond that, and then start talking about you know start having these conversations about sex. It's like, well, guess what? your information is not the first information there and it decreases the value of information that you're providing because kids are like, Oh yeah, I know this already. So you get discounted or I know that already, you know, it's like, Oh, I don't have to listen to you. I'm just going to go to the internet to get my questions answered or, or whatever the case may be. I mean, it boosts your credibility if you're talking about this all along. And if you happen to have young children in the house, you know, start talking now because then it becomes part of the conversation and it's not uncomfortable. Yeah. And with young children, it's like, you know, they're going to ask. They do. They ask what they're curious. They want to know. They want to know about how their bodies work. They want to know where babies come from. You know, they they have questions. Perfect opportunity. Yeah, exactly. Like, like young children will naturally bring it up. You don't have to wait for the right timing. Right. Yeah. Five years old is a great time to start telling your kid about the basics of sex, where babies come from. Like, they don't have to know all the nitty gritty details. They don't want that. But they want, they need factual information. You don't need to care, you know, like go out beyond, you know, you don't need to tell them the whole story, but you know, the basic facts. And then they grow up understanding the basic facts and the same with body parts, you know, 
get kids to understand and know the names of the body parts. And one of my pet peeves is, especially about female bodies, is that the vulva area is often referred to as the vagina. It's like, no, that is not the vagina. It's like you have the vagina is the inside part, you know, that leads to the cervix and the uterus, you know, it's the canal. And then there's all this external stuff, you know, the labia, the the vulva, the pubic mound, all these different things. So the outside is collectively called the vulva, where the inside, the canal, is called the vagina. And so I think it's important to make sure that kids learn proper terminology. And sometimes the adults may need to go and learn it themselves first, so well, that they can. I was I was just going to say. I remember yeah. when I was working in the in the midwifery world, and there were some women who were pregnant who didn't know their anatomy. Yep. And I think that that first of all, like to destigmatize the shame around that, like if you don't remember all of those terms and and you didn't learn that in school, like first of all, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. You don't need to feel shame around that. And like there are very, there's so many resources out there to get that information so that you can have anatomically correct conversations with your children. I think that what you're, what you're pointing at is so important to be able to just say like penis, foreskin, scrotum, testicle, anus, vagina, vulva, labia, clitoris. Like these are all anatomical words that are totally appropriate and okay to say to your children and to have them repeat to other people. And if there Mm -hmm. is shame around that, if you don't think that that's okay, it's because there is shame around that. And so there, that then therein, if you're listening to this as a parent Mm -hmm. and you're hearing these words and you're like, Oh my God, I'm horrified at the thought of a saying these words to my child or B having my child repeat them to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, like I get it, you know, I had, I had a moment with my daughter where, um, and it was great because we got to, we got to actually break down the anatomy a little bit more where you know, we, we, uh, I was going to, my husband is a, is a classically trained musician and he was playing in the symphony and, um, and so we were going, but he, we didn't have tickets, whatever, um, last minute he realized that it was sold out before he got us comps and, um, and so I, but I just knew I was like, we're going to get in and it'll be totally fine. It's going to work perfectly. And we ended up because I'm pregnant. I was like, Oh, I have to pee. Can we get into the, into the lobby so that I can go use the restroom, you know? And, um, and it, it just ended up being this perfect segue. We got these great seats, blah, blah, blah. It worked out very well. And my daughter in retelling the story was like, my mom's vagina saved the day, you know? Right. And, I definitely, I had a moment where I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that, that this is, because she said it to my in-laws on the, on, right. when we were FaceTiming <laughs> with them, you know, she was like, my mom's vagina is magical and saved the day. And I was like, well, yes, your mom's vagina is magical. And um, I didn't actually say that to her, but I, you know, w- my husband and I were both like, actually it was mom's bladder that saved her. Right. Technically. You know, that wasn't, it wasn't because <laughs> I'm like, Oh right. Lord, like where are my in-laws going to go with that picture? Right. Right. Because uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> if it was mom's vagina, then we have some conversations to have. About yeah. Our right. Uh-huh. And our boundaries, but um, you know, or whatever decisions we make with that. Mm-hmm. But so, you know, it's like I, the, I could have just gone t- into total mortification around that, which mm-hmm. believe me, there was a part of me and I do this work. I run a podcast. Like I talk about this stuff all the time. And right. there was still this part of me that was like, oh my God, I can't believe like this is horrifying. And yet I, I used it as a teaching moment of like, no, that's mom's bladder. You know, right. that wasn't mom's vagina. This is, this is a different part of the anatomy we're talking about. Right. Yep. It's like the bladder holds your pee and when your bladder's full, it's time to empty it. Right. Right. <laughs> and so just, just to say to, you know, the parents yeah. who are listening, like I get like these moments, even, even when you do this work and you, and you're studying and you're in it, like, yeah, sometimes when those things come out of your kid's mouth, it's like, Ooh, Ooh, mm-hmm. it, it'll, it'll push your edges and yet it's worth it. Right. It's yeah. worth it for your children to understand the truth about their bodies and how they work. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, because, yeah, because otherwise, how are they going to know? I mean, you can't really depend on school to cover all the bases, especially when it comes to like reproductive and like the anatomy, like, like 
in science class, when you're learning anatomy, like they're going to talk about the bladder, but they may not like go and say, oh, when your bladder is full, then you feel the urge to pee. Like they may not make that connection. Whereas, you know, your daughter is having this conversation with your in-laws and she's trying to make that connection. And what kids do is when they don't have all the information, they just make things up to fill in the blank. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, well, I know mom's vagina is down there. And so it must be her vagina saved the day because she had to pee, you know? <laughs> you know and there's there's lots of examples like i mean the first time i had sex i didn't have all the facts and so i filled in the blanks with information that i knew for example i knew that female dogs were in heat you could get pregnant when they're in heat so that to me meant that if you're bleeding you could get pregnant and so for me as a young teenager who's having her period and knows nothing about her body. And so I'm thinking, well, I don't want to get pregnant, but I'm going to go have sex. Of course, I'm too young to know anything about birth control. And so the first time I had sex, it was unprotected. And I was thinking, well, I'm not bleeding, so I'm okay. And thank God I didn't get pregnant because that's some pretty messed up, you know, thinking there. I mean, like that's nothing could be further from the truth. You know, it's like, that's not how the human body works. And yet I think it's a beautiful illustration of, you know, we make these assumptions about our kids because we're like, well, my kid is smart. Like they wouldn't, they wouldn't draw those conclusions. And I think it's what's really important to, to illustrate and emphasize in this, in this conversation is that, yes, your kids are smart. That doesn't mean that the child brain isn't going to fill in gaps in ways that the adult brain would not. Um, And that is a really important thing to just understand about child brain development that they, they will and child brain development, by the way, goes all the way through the teen years into early adulthood. Like the brain is still developing Mm -hmm. um, and those pathways are, either going to be filled in with appropriate information or they will fill it in with whatever quote unquote makes sense to them, which might not be anywhere near what's true or accurate. Exactly. So all this to just emphasize the importance of educating ourselves as parents and being willing to have these really, you know, sometimes challenging, but they get easier as you go along conversations with your children about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so let's talk about STDs for a moment and how sure. you approach that conversation with parents and with children. Yeah. So when, when, you know, whenever you're having a conversation about sex, you know, there's many facets to sex. There's the beautiful, you know, connected, loving aspect of sex. And then there's also the aspect of sex that comes with a lot of responsibility or there's things that are maybe not so pleasant and, you know, loving and things like that. You know, there can be violence with sex. There can be sexually transmitted diseases with sex. And so when you're talking to your kids about the responsibilities that come along with having sex, protecting yourself from sexually transmitted diseases is one of those conversations. And there's lots of different ways to approach it. But I think the main thing is that you know, your body is a temple and you want to treat it with respect. You want to put good things in and, you know, try to avoid the things that are harmful, you know, and I mean, this can go translate into food, you know, putting in sugar, alcohol, these sorts of things. It can transfer, you know, into the conversations about sex. And so when you're talking about sexually transmitted diseases, there's, it's important to know that there's different kinds of sexually transmitted diseases. There's the bacterial forms, which for the most part can be cured with antibiotics. However, there are starting to become some antibiotic resistant strains mm-hmm. of gonorrhea, you know, for example. And so these are of great concern because these are serious sexually transmitted diseases. And a lot of STDs don't have overt symptom, symptoms. And so people can carry a sexually transmitted disease and not know it. And so it's important for parents to communicate this message as well. It's like you can't tell just by looking at a penis or looking at a vulva and tell that somebody carries a sexually transmitted disease infection. And the the, the term sexually transmitted infection, sexually transmitted diseases is pretty much used interchangeably. I go back and forth. I first learned 
that they were called sexually transmitted diseases when I first started learning about this. And since then, they've kind of evolved it into infections just because mm-hmm. of stigmas around diseases and that sort of things. But let's talk a little bit about the sexually transmitted viruses, because in my opinion, those are really the ones that we especially need to be aware of and concerned about. You know, of course, everybody knows about HIV, you know, AIDS, which turns into AIDS, and there's a lot of medications that can deal with it, but you don't want HIV, you know? It's like something that you get and you can't get rid of. And it has serious consequences on your health, and the medications to deal with it are very expensive. It's like, yes, AIDS is not killing people the way that it used to be, but it's still not something that you want to acquire. And it's out there. There's pockets of the country where it's, you know, it's, I don't want to say rampant, but it's like a serious problem. And, you know, and kids can get it. Teenagers can get it. Young people can get it. Anybody can get it. Another um, virus that's out there is the human papillomavirus. This is our most common sexually transmitted disease. Millions of people carry the virus and lots of people do not know that they have it. Something that's important to know is that there is no test for men to find out if they can have it, at least not that's being offered by your physician. There are home test kits that men can use to find out if they have it, but for the most part, men are not tested because they don't have any treatment plan for them. Women are tested for HPV because it has an adverse effect on our cervix. It can set us up for cervical cancer. There is a vaccine now that parents are being asked to give their children. They can give it to both their girls and their boys. And this can protect against several of the strains of HPV. So HPV is a wart virus. There is approximately 200 different strains of the wart virus. Some produce hand uh, warts on the hands and feet. Some produce uh, warts in the genitals. There's about 40 strains of HPV that can affect the genitals. 14 of those are associated with cancer. Two of them are associated with genital warts. And so the the vaccine will protect against the two strains of the wart virus. And it will also protect against seven of the 14 cancer-causing strains. And so the virus, so the vaccine does not provide complete protection against the virus, but it can and does reduce the risk of cervical cancer. So there, I'm curious, just because I know, I mean, and I, we don't need to have, get into a whole conversation mm-hmm. about vaccines. So that's a really heated mm-hmm. issue. Yes. But from my understanding, there have been also a lot of pretty serious adverse reactions to the HPV vaccine in particular. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, Facebook groups out there who um, that have formed, um, you know, by parents, by people who have, you know, had either A, had themselves or B, had their children have adverse, you know, reactions to the vaccine. And I don't really have an opinion either way. Like you said, it's it's a very heated issue. And I think that parents need to, you know, weigh the risks, weigh the options and decide for themselves. What I will say about vaccines is there's laws that prevent a lot of negative information from being brought forward in a way. um, To educate the public. Yeah. to I mean, I'm struggling a little bit with how I want to phrase it because I don't want to like push people's buttons and this kind of thing, because vaccines, the reason that they want the vaccines to be used is because, you know, things like measles and smallpox and these things, they polio, like they're devastating diseases. And when you're vaccinating the herd, you're reducing the risk of, you know, outbreaks of these diseases. So there's mm-hmm. been a lot of good that has happened from these vaccines. And so there's laws in place that prevent people from saying a lot of negative things about vaccines. And they kind of do that on purpose. However, with any medication, there's always side effects. I mean, aspirin, there's side effects, you know, the drugs that are available through your doctor, there's side effects. And so it's reasonable to think that some people may experience side effects from vaccines as well. Everybody responds differently. There's 
I don't know if um, you've ever done any of like the, the DNA testing that's out there, like 23andMe or, you know, Ancestry, but you can plug that data into some of these other softwares that will give you like information about the genes and the sort of thing. I had this, these te- one of these tests done a few years ago. And so I was just kind of like cruising through, you know, like the information, you know, it doesn't mean a whole lot to me. I don't know a lot about genes and, and this kind of stuff, but it's interesting. And I was noticing that there's a few like certain genes like can that are associated with people having more adverse reactions to, you know, vaccines or medications or this or that and this kind of thing. And so I was like, Oh, well look at that. You know, like they've done enough research to know that some people, you know, if they have this gene combination or whatever, this gene is active in their body may respond not quite as well to a vaccine. And so I was like, okay. So there's a little bit of, you know, genetic scientific evidence that maybe some people don't respond that well to vaccines, which we already know anyway. You know, there's a lot of parents out there who are like, I had a normal kid. They got a vaccine. My kid is not behaving like they used to, you know, a week ago. And so, you know, this kind of stuff does happen. And I don't think it's right that we necessarily try to tell these parents that, oh, you're, this is not true. This didn't happen. It's like, you know, your kid and you know, if something's different, but I think, you know, I think that there's, there's risk involved with anything. And I think that parents need to weigh the risk, you know, HP, you know, HPV is a sexually transmitted virus. It's transmitted skin on skin. So condoms don't provide a hundred percent protection. The majority of HPV infections are cleared naturally by the body after about two years, approximately. And so, and also there's a lot of things that we can do as individuals to support our body, to help heal if you're affected by, you know, cervical dysplasia, to help heal the cervix, to help support the immune system, to get rid of the HPV virus. And so there's a lot of things that women and I'm go- and I'm going to go out on a limb and say men can do also to help their bodies fight back against HPV. And so, again, knowing that the vaccine does not provide 100% protection, and knowing that, you know, just seeing from experience, you know, I run a, a, a Facebook group that has women, you know, women who find me with who have been adversely affected by HPV there's a lot of them in there who have had the vaccine and they're like, I don't understand. I had the vaccine. How can I possibly have this? And mm-hmm. because there's more than one strain and the vaccine doesn't pr- protect against all of it. And so, so I it mean, kind of, I, go ahead. It, for me, it feels like the, like the biggest takeaway here is how, you know, I mean, we started out this topic raising empowered kids and I really think empowerment comes first and foremost through, through information, um, education, mm-hmm. and knowing that there is something that we can do to support ourselves, to take care of ourselves. Um, I think these, these conversations, especially when we're talking about sexually transmitted diseases or infections, um, there's a lot of fear mm-hmm. around it, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh my God, I don't even want to bring that up with my kids because I don't even want to think about the possibility of that happening to them, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, and, or I don't want to scare the shit out of them, you know, and I don't want to scare them away from, from having sex. But I think that, I think that really it's about arming our children with knowledge and education so that they can be empowered to make decisions that are informed, that are, that, that, that come from having a wealth of information about whatever decision it is that they're making. And I think this is true for adults too. And there's, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of adults that need a lot of education about this stuff, you know, um, yes. especially when it comes to how we can actually take care of our bodies. You know, you mentioned like there are things that we can do. We don't have to be victims. Even if we do contract some of these things, um, there, there are ways that we can, we can be with them and we can take care of them and we can support our bodies to naturally clear and, and clean that kind of thing out. Yes. And, you know, I think, like you said, empowerment is all about like educating yourself, having the information, being informed, being able to make informed decisions 
and you know, like for let's take for example the women who have cervical dysplasia when they go to their doctor and they get diagnosed with this, for them the only option is a surgical procedure, either a watch and wait or b get some sort of surgical procedure, and it's really kind of an extreme way of addressing the problems that HPV causes. And right. And also no one tells you that that surgical procedure, which is called a leap where they're going to scrape your cervix can have really negative implications. If you plan on having a baby Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the scar tissue that it leaves on your cervix and and the ability for your cervix to open naturally during birth, if you've had a leap procedure, it's a lot harder for that natural thing to occur. Yeah, there's leap procedures, there's cone biopsies, there's uh, they freeze your cervix, um, there's hot metal wire loops that they cut pieces out, that's the leap. Um, so yeah, the, there's the treatments for it are really extreme. And the sad thing is, is it actually really responds well to natural therapies. And, you know, that's just not an option that the doctor offers. And so, well, I think when, a lot of times the doctor doesn't know about it. Well, yeah, that's not their, that's not how they, that's not the window that they look through. They want to address it quickly, get it done. You know, their, their fear is that you'll go home and ignore it and it eventually turn into cervical cancer. And right. their solution is just to cut it out, which doesn't, get rid of the HPV, it just removes the abnormal cells. And then if you, you know, have intention of having children in the future, it can affect future fertility. Now they're scarring on the cervix, depending on what kind of procedure was done. If a cone biopsy was done, that's where they like cut a piece out around the opening of the cervix, which is the passage that the baby comes through. And so if they're scarring, it may be harder for the cervix to open fully to let the baby out. And so, yeah, I mean, there's just so many issues that can be caused by it. And when somebody has taken the time to educate themselves, like for for me personally, by the time I was diagnosed with cervical dysplasia, I was already on the path of natural remedies and knowing that there's alternatives out there. And so when I got my diagnosis, I immediately started looking for alternative remedies. I found a naturopathic doctor who had a protocol. I found somebody to help me. We followed that protocol and my cervix healed. I was clear of HPV, any problems with my cervix for 14 years until I got re-exposed with a new partner. And that's another story for another time. But, you know, so there's, there's part of being empowered is just knowing your options and knowing that there's many different ways to accomplish a goal. Yes. Yes. And that it doesn't have to be, we don't have to be making decisions based on fear. And that making decisions based on fear is not empowerment. It's um, not empowering. And a lot of times decisions made based on fear are bad decisions and you come to regret them later. <laughs> I couldn't agree more with you. Yes. Um, well, we have come to the end of our time. I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to, to be on the show today. Um, yeah. And just thank you for the work that you're doing in the world and, and for the, the way that you're showing up. And I mean, clearly you have so much information and knowledge about this. So if there are parents that are listening to this that really want to dive deeper with Robin, go, go check out her stuff. Um, go, go to holisticsexedradio.com so that you can, you can educate and empower yourself so that you can educate and empower your children. Yes, I would love it to have people check out my show. We have more great conversations just like the one you and I had. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. And I thank you so much for inviting me to be here today. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. And to our listeners, so, so, so much love to you. Until next time, go out and love yourself so that you can love the world more deeply. Many blessings. Thank you. Are you ready to discover your superpowers? Go now to superpowerexperts.com and take the superpower quiz today.